Hi, everyone, and welcome to Happy Not Satisfied. My name is Dan Morrison, and I am the founder of Happy Not Satisfied and host of this podcast. So I like to say that this podcast is industry agnostic, and usually what I mean is each guest comes from all kinds of backgrounds. Uh, but today, I think we have somebody that they themselves covers a lot of backgrounds and a lot of industries in a super impressive way. And she really embodies this whole idea. I mean, she's had multiple stints in the entertainment industry. She worked on a Senate campaign. She helped the massive international brand Fila return to glory, which I have a story about that later. Um, I think somewhere in there, she helped build a furniture company too. Um, she's now the president of Littleton Road Productions, which is responsible for massively successful shows like Dr. Death and The Girl from Plainville. Uh, I know they have huge titles in development like Vanderbilt and Hatching Twitter. And this is a little bit longer of a bio than I normally do, but this is a very special guest who I was just telling her before we hit record, like the podcast was kind of inspired by her. So um, welcome to Happy Not Satisfied, Kelly Funk. Oh my God. Now it's all downhill from here, my friend. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so I, good to see you. It's amazing I to see you. It's been too long. We miss you. Uh, likewise, 100%. Do we, do we need to disclose our prior relationship? We can, yeah. I mean, now that you've said that, we should probably <laughs> clarify. <laughs> we want it. We did not date. No. Um, so Daniel was my intern uh, two summers ago in the middle of COVID, which any of you who out there who were trying to intern in the middle of COVID, you know how hard that is. And we uh, we fell in love with him in the appropriately platonic work sense and have um, passionately been following his progress from here. And I know those of your folks that listen to this podcast on a regular basis know you have your own unique and fabulous journey and you exemplify what I admire so much in people and which I think we're going to talk about a little bit later, which is the concept of risk as the way to make your own luck. So um, I'm just so happy to be with you. And but again, so happy to see your face because it's been a long time. Yes, thank you. And, you know, I, I did speaking of risk and, and creating your own luck and all those things that we will get into. I mean, when I was thinking about making a huge life shift in every way and, you know, kind of leaving a safe career and moving across the country and all these things, um, you were a huge just champion of me and gave me a lot of confidence to follow through with that. So uh, thank you for that. And I think it's just a testament to, to your mindset and how you approach life. Um, so I, I'd first, just before we get into some of that more deep stuff, if you could talk a little bit about what you do now, and I, I almost hesitate sure. to say what a day looks like, because I know each day is so different, but just like a high level yeah. overview of what's happening. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so I I, you know, I, I am president of Littleton Road Productions. Um, I think that Patrick and I run the company slightly differently. That title means different things in, in, in different production companies. Um, when I came back for my third tour of duty, and, and that's what I call it, my third tour of duty in Hollywood at, at the invitation of my brother, we were very clear about what we felt like how he felt like I would be most impactful to the organization. And that really is at the top of the funnel of creating a television show, which is, you know, identifying the projects, be that either original concepts or IP, finding the writers, working with those writers to develop their ideas to first sell to a studio, and then beyond that, sell to a distributor, uh, and then help the writer 
through the process or help the creator through the process of, you know, putting together their writer's room, help them make their writer's room happen, get them through the early days of casting, attaching a director to the pilot. And then at that point, and this is where we're different from other, other production companies, I really say goodbye to the project for the next seven, eight months. So I am not actively involved in the production of our shows. Um, I come back into the funnel, the process, once we start talking about the marketing of the show. I spent 10 years overseeing um, marketing in North America for Fila with some global oversight and global partnerships as well. Um, so I feel like that's a value add back to the company. Um, and the reason why we're doing that is because part of our goal as a company is to really have a very robust pipeline and to ultimately have us end up with three, four, five shows on an air, on the air in a single, you know, year to two years. And in order to do that, you've really got to stay heavily focused on the writers in the early days of the pipeline. So my day is entirely 100% writer focused. Um, and that is across a portfolio of projects that is, you know, let's call it 11. It's, I think it's 11 strong that we have in development with UCP or we have in development or production at distributors like Amazon and Peacock and Netflix. Um, and then I have another 11 to 15 projects that I call, you know, they're, they're, they're at the gate, right? They're, the passengers are getting loaded. So those are projects in internal development that I am getting prepared to, once a project goes off and goes into production, we sort of put that into the pipeline and, and we see if a studio or a distributor is, is interested in it. I hope that helps. Yeah, no, so that's great. That's, and that's at a top level. So a typical day is not a typical, yeah, a typical day is not typical, but yeah. what it is focused on every day is our, is our writer, is our writers, right? Whatever they need. That's what I, that's what I'm focused on. No, that's great. And I, I was mentioning the feel of thing because I was, listening to another podcast recently it's called i think the diary of a ceo it's this massive podcast of this guy who has these huge guests on and he was just yeah. he was making an aside about something to make an example and he's he used fila and he said you know they kind of fell off and it wasn't that cool to have it and then they had this huge resurgence and now it's amazing and i was like that was kelly <laughs> so 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 let me be very clear on to to everyone um i figured out and, and I and I talk and I talk about this a lot with folks that that I'm that we're bringing up, folks that I mentor. You know, you need to figure out in your career whether you are going to be a number one or you're going to be a number two. And what I mean by that is, and the easiest way to think about it is, you know, there's the president of the United States, and then there's his chief of staff. And I, I've joked with people, you know, I like to think that I, I have the pleasure of working for, I've worked over my career for a lot of great Bill Belichick's who like know exactly what they need to do. And trust me, I am not Tom Brady. I don't look like him. I don't have his talent, but I like to think that those, those, you know, Bill Belichick is the genius and he had the strategy and he knew what he was going to do. And then he knew he could say to Tom Brady, like, I need you to go out and do X, Y, or Z. Um, so I am an executor. I am not a strategist. And the gentleman that brought back Fila, unfortunately, um, died of a massive heart attack in my last three months at Fila. Um, he was he was alive one day and he was dead the next. He he'd been with the company for 21 years, and he was the gentleman who really sort of 
saw in me the potential and then cultivated it. And over the course of 10 years, you know, John would call out the plays and then I would go out and execute on them. And, and I will say secondarily to that, and or I should say in tandem with that, his um, COO, who was my mentor, who was, who was my mentor in a very, very real way, who hired me in the first place and who was gracious enough to allow at a certain point that that relationship for John to evolve. You know, so many folks that you work for um, become very territorial of people. And Jennifer Esterbrook, who just retired as the president of FILA a few weeks ago, you know, she was the one that at the halfway point of my 10 years was like, okay, I'm always going to be here for you, but you're good. Like you go with, you go with John, you know, she let me have that one-on-one relationship. And, and so the three of us and many, many other people at FILA, again, I have to be very clear. FILA had employees who had been there for 15 years when I came in, in 2009. And I was the, I was the upstart employee and that's how they referred to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They were like, you are crazy. And why did they hire you? And I was sort of this upstart employee that so many people who had the experience and who knew the brand and who knew what needed to be done. You know, I was just sort of out there in the marketing area running the plays that these very smart people who knew the brand inside and out, um, you know, they, they needed a producer, quite frankly, they needed an executor. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was. So, so many people, both not with us and still with us. Um, you know, Danny Lieberman, who ran apparel, who had been with the brand for 25 years and was so gracious. And so, because again, if you think about it, Daniel, I had, I had just come off working on a U.S. Senate campaign. I'd spent seven years in Hollywood. I knew nothing about <laughs> footwear. I knew nothing, right? I knew nothing about the footwear or apparel business. So you can't make leaps like I've made in my career without really smart people willing to take risk with you. And again, it comes back to that word, right? People who are willing to take a, a chance on you and then you've been able to deliver for them. Um, so the feel of glory goes to a gentleman named John Epstein, a woman named Jennifer Esterbrook, a guy named Danny Lieberman. And I just had the pleasure of running the plays for them that, um, that they put together. So very but humble it's of funny, you. but it's nice that somebody it's nice that somebody said that. I had no yeah. idea. That's kind of yeah. cool. It's really cool. Yeah. It was cool. And That's I awesome. think that That's very I think cool. you are you are more of, more of a strategist than maybe you give yourself credit for, but I I understand where you're coming from. Um I, and and just really quickly too, now that we kind of know what you do, a little bit about the Fila thing, but I just think you have such a really inspiring story because it's not linear at all in the in terms yes. of what you've done in your life and I think oftentimes yeah. people think if I'm not building to this one thing, then I'm just doing it wrong. Um, and I think yeah. you are proof that that is completely not the case. So if you could just talk a little bit about that, I think it'd be great. Sure. I love you for saying that because I think that is the mindset as human beings that we really have to embrace. And I think we have to embrace it now more than even when I was starting off. And just so everybody knows, I'm very transparent about my age. So I'm, I'm 51 years old, right? I've been working for, um, well, I, I started working when I was 14, but I've been working, you know, quote unquote, since college. I, I graduated on a Sunday and started work on a Tuesday. So I'm, I'm celebrating my 30 year anniversary of the workplace. But here's what I will say. <clears throat> I've always approached my career from the vantage point of what am I good at, not what job do I want. And I was 
And because of my undergraduate degree, I had a Bonkers undergraduate degree, which was organizational psychology. Um, and part of that degree was focused on figuring out how you, like when you look at employees, how do you figure out what they're good at, not what job they should do? If that makes sense. If you mm-hmm. approach it from that point, point of view, then you're able to consider yourself industry agnostic and you're just trying to figure out what your skill set that can be plopped into a bunch of different industries. So I was, so there, you know, there was no such thing as the gig economy in 93 when I graduated. There was no such thing as the side hustle when I graduated in 93. Um, But what I was hyper-conscious of was, okay, this is what I know I'm good at. And then over the course of my career, I was most interested in continuing to learn regardless of industry, Um, even though the entertainment industry was my love. And as evidenced by the fact that I'm back again for a third time, um, and it was what it, it was what I kept my eye on always, right? Mm-hmm. So even when I was not working in the entertainment industry, I was still reading scripts. I was still going to you know six films uh, every Friday back when we would go to movie theaters, right? Like yeah. that was my thing. I would leave work on a Friday night and I would go watch at least three films back to back. And then on Saturday, I would get up and watch the other films that I hadn't seen that had been released for that weekend. So, but, so the career is this, graduated on a Sunday, Tuesday flew to Los Angeles, started as an intern for a very, um, very smart independent film producer, Carrie Woods, who produced 14 films in the four years I was there, which is crazy. Yep. Crazy. First time writer directors for the most part. So Alexander Payne's first film, John Favreau and Doug Lyman's first film, hmm. James Mangold's second film, Harmony Corinne's first film, Larry Clark's first film, Gary Fleeter's first film, Scott Rosenberg, Night Shyamalan, like wow. unbelievable list of really now household names. And I had the privilege of watching their first films or their second films get made. Um, did that for four years. And then really kind of needed to make some money and left. Um, and that's when I did the startup furniture company. Again, everybody needs to get this context-wise, right? This is 1997. There were startups happening left and right. I was 27 years old. And the and my boss's wife was the founder and CEO of J. Crew, And so I had gotten to know the creative director of J. Crew very well. And he had been like, do you want to come over and help me do this startup? And so completely outside the entertainment industry, but still to me, I approached it like a producer. I'm like, Mm. well, I don't know anything about furniture. Again, in the same way that I didn't know anything about shoes or footwear, but like, what do you know about making a film about a cat killer in Nashville? Or what do you know about Godzilla, right? Like, what do you know about cops in New Jersey, in Edgewater, New Jersey? So I just approached it from a producer mindset, which was, you know, you do your research, you do your homework, and then you learn from other people that are smarter than you. So, um, so that was Furniture Company, and that was four years, and that was kind of my MBA without paying for it. I had nothing to do with the creative side. I didn't know how to draw furniture, build furniture, et cetera, but I was dealing with the employees. I hired the CFO. I was dealing with the tech. I was, you know, I was the director of operations. So it gave me that opportunity to sort of learn that piece. Then when I was 30, I was like, okay, it's time. My best friend, Liz Allen, who 
just won her first Emmy. Shout out to Liz Allen wow. for um, Sneakerella at the Children's Emmys a few weeks ago. I was there, not at the ceremony, but I dressed her before. Um, she and I were college roommates. We worked together for, for that film producer together. We, we, we had no money. We shared the rent on a two bedroom where we split the one bedroom and we, the room was so small that we only had room for a twin size bed. So we would actually do sleep cycles, like sleep shifts between us. Um, So I would sleep from nine until two, she would come in and sleep. So from two to five, you would share the bed. And then I would get out at five and then she would have the bed from like five until 10. Wow. So yeah. So she won her first Emmy for best picture for Sneakerella, so which cool. I'm so proud of her for. Right. So Lizzie was doing her film out of USC. She asked me to come back and be an associate producer on it. I took my three weeks. I saved up my vacation at furniture company and took my three weeks to go back and do it. And then at that point it was like, okay, like I'm going to try and start my, my production company. Um, and that was seven years. That was 2001 to 2007. Sorry, that was six years. And in between then, my side hustle was working as a, as a cook and a flight attendant on a private jet. So that's how I earned the money to be able to be a producer. Mm. And in year three of that, because again, I was making no money, right? Anybody who's done this industry knows you make no money for a very, very long time. And so you better have some, some, side, some side jobs. Um, so in 2004, my brother, Patrick decided that he didn't want to be the most famous cadaver on NCIS. He was like cast over and over and over again. And, um, I, he came and said, like, I really want to work in TV. And it was way before we were in the golden age of television, right? Sopranos, The Wire, Mad Men was just bubbling up. Um, and he somehow knew that that was where he wanted to focus. And so we then spent three years together working our asses off. We had a lot of projects in development. Um, the only thing, the only person that could paid less than a writer, <laughs> an early days writer is his non-writing producing partner mm-hmm. in TV. And um, I spent a year living out of my car on and off from 2006 to 2007 because I really believed in it. And I really believed in him and what we were doing. And in 2007, the writer strike came and we lost we had five projects at every single network at the time. We had one at every network and all five of them went away. Um, and I was 37. And I said to him, like, I, I got, I got, I've got to go earn some money. And a good friend of the family was running for U.S. Senate. And again, in like this left turn that I sort of produced, uh, you know, approached like a producer. She said, will you come be my right hand? Um, and if anyone has ever worked on a campaign, you know that campaigning is a business onto itself, right? There, there is the business of actually being an elected official, but the business of getting elected is a very tough business. Um, I would not wish it on anyone. Um, if the American people knew what happened in the business of getting somebody elected, I think they would be horrified. Uh, but I was the go-between, between the campaign and the candidate. And that was my job. And I oversaw all of her, all of the money for the campaign. It was a very expensive campaign because it was done in the tri-state area. Mm. Um, and it was my job to deliver bad news to the candidate. And it was my job to deliver bad news to the campaign. Hmm. And then to also be a consigliere to both of them. So to me, it didn't feel that different from producing. So 
we worked on her campaign. She unfortunately had a health crisis and had to drop out in the primary. I then went back to TV for a sec, for a nanosecond, in order to work as a producing director's assistant. So again, at that point, I had overseen a film 10 years before, but I didn't know anything about television production. And so I went back down the shoots and ladders game and, and became an assistant again so that I could learn on set. Um, and then at that point, I fell in love with my husband who always gets upset when I tell the stories. He's like, it makes it sound like I'm the reason you left the entertainment industry. <laughs> he was not the reason I left the entertainment industry. Um, but I was 39 and I wanted to try and have kids and this industry is brutal. Um, and so I felt like maybe what I would do is work for a few years for Fila. And I'd gotten this job offer again from Jennifer Esterbrook, who is a family friend, who was like, I feel like you can do this. You're going to have to learn a lot. They hired me to run their e-commerce team, oh, which wow. I'd never done any e-commerce before. That's how I started. And then marketing got added to my list of duties mm. over the course of the decade. And, uh, and then I found out I couldn't have kids. And at that point, Patrick had moved out of the country. He was in Mongolia because he had also gotten married. His wife was working for the State Department. And so I was like, you know what? Maybe my role in Hollywood was not to stay in Hollywood. It was to help other people get launched. And, and I'm going to, and I love this Fila thing. And so I stayed with Fila for 10 years. I thought I was going to take the job for two. I actually told, <laughs> I told Jennifer, I'm like, I'm only taking this job for two years. And she's like, you can't tell me that legally. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, please don't tell me that. But she's like, we'll take you forever long. Well, we can get you. And it turned out to be a decade. Wow. Um, and at the end of the 10 years, when I was ready to go, that's when Patrick came back and said, would you consider coming back? I'm in a place where I can hire an executive. Hmm. Um, and I want to try to finish what we started in 2004 to 2007. So, so yeah, so it's been a long, crazy journey. Um, I've loved every second of it. I've never taken a job for money or title. I've always taken it because I felt like I could continue to learn. Hmm. And, you know, again, you, everybody makes different life choices, right? I don't, I don't have children right now because I chose to focus on a career and that's a life choice. Um, I don't know if I could have done what I did if I had kids. I know I couldn't have done what I did if I had kids, right? Yeah. You just had your beautiful son, right? Yeah. There's a whole new thing that happens when you're responsible for another human being. Oh yeah. I wasn't even willing to be responsible for a husband more yeah. or less a child. Right. <laughs> I mean, the husband didn't happen until 30, 38, 39. So, yeah. so you, so I made specific choices um, and zero, zero regrets, but those choices were, I was able to make those other choices to not worry about money or title because I literally was able to like move into a Honda CRV for a year of my life on and off oh in order to be able to keep it going. Yeah. So, so that's the crazy journey. It's not, thank and you. I, <laughs> <laughs> lots of context for those decisions. Yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting too, hearing that last part you're talking about, it's kind of, it's all about trade-offs, right? Which I, I've been thinking about a lot lately in yeah. life. It's just, everything kind of is a trade-off. It's just what, what are you getting and what are you giving up and what's yep. more important? Um, yep. And it seems like you've thought a lot about that too and made some, a lot of decisions yeah. based on, on that sort of mindset. Um, yeah. 
So as I've told you, and, and as this podcast goes, you have done so many things and you've just busted it. And I, I really admire you that you just, you say you've never taken a job for money or title, even like in your later thirties and things like that. I, I don't know if everyone would be that way. Um, and it certainly seems like it was always the right decision, but I, you know, I talk about this idea of creating your own luck um, and yeah. kind of like looking. So to me, not to me, because I, I know you and I've heard your story, but to somebody else, they might say, here's Kelly, this amazing Hollywood producer who's got these big shows and she's doing all the stuff like, was she, where was she before? Is this an overnight success? Like, what is this? They just see the tip yeah. of the iceberg. You just yeah. gave us a glimpse of sort of the rest of the iceberg. But I would love to hear, like, is there a specific time or, or something you can relate to with creating your own luck? Yeah. I would. Yeah, yeah. If you have anything. Yeah. I mean, I... I was thinking about this a lot since you and I emailed and I think that luck to me has come from the relationships in my life. Mm. Every moment in time, I, I literally have never had to send out, I'm 51 and I've never had to send out a resume. Wow. And I know that it's crazy to say. Um, and I reckon, I mean, talk about luck, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So what I attribute creating your luck to is the integrity of the relationships that you build over the course of your life. And every person that has given me an opportunity to create another chapter of my life, that has come from other people that hasn't come from me. So I am profoundly conscious of the people that are in my life and the people that I work to try to hold on to the relationships with. And that's not easy. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I, when I was, when I was younger, I had somebody say to me, you know, people come into your life for a reason, a season or all time. Hmm. That is a very hard lesson to figure out about people. And all I can say is, is that, the people that have given me opportunities to change my luck, to create my luck are people that have been in my life for all time. And so, um, but you never know who those people are going to be when you're younger. Mm -hmm. And that sounds, and I don't want that to sound um, Machiavellian or calculating, sure. right? So there are, there are people in my life that have had to go out for one reason or another, but I think that it comes down to on a daily basis, how do you treat people? And there are people in my life I haven't treated well. We all have that, right? And then how do you make amends for that and try to do better? So I think it's, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's the right thing to do as human beings, but it is also has proven to be incredibly helpful in, in my career. Um, and, and you don't know when you're younger. And, and I say this to our interns all the time. I'm like, look, like you have to get up. It, it is work to get up every day and treat people with kindness and integrity mm -hmm. and patience and love. And if that's not what you're coming to the door trying to do every day, then you probably need to work on that. <laughs> it's who you should be as a human being, but it's also what you need to do, especially in a creative environment, right? It is mm -hmm. such a, you are given, you know, I work with writers all day long. When I was at Fila, I worked with 
creative directors all day long. Right? These are people who get up and look at a blinking cursor. They look at nothing. They look at a sneaker and they're asked to come up with a campaign, right? They look at a blank page and someone's like, do something with this. Mm. You, are, you are asked to take care of the ember of an idea. Mm. And that's how you have to approach it. And if we thought about not just the creative environments that I've had the privilege of working in, but right, it's like there were furniture designers, right? Like they saw something. They saw something that nobody else saw. It's like, how do you protect them? How do you protect the ember and let it grow? And it's not always going to grow the way they want to. And when that happens, then how do you help them celebrate what is there? What is there for them that that was their vision that has then been altered? Because every creative vision ultimately gets altered, unfortunately. Yeah. So, But if we think about that, that every human being we encounter is an ember and we can either douse that ember or help that ember to grow. That I think creates people, whether you have a very close relationship with them or they're seeing you from afar and they see you as somebody who has helped their ember grow. I think that's how I created my luck because of the other people that were able to recognize that I may not always get it right, but every day I'm going to get up and hopefully be a force for good in what you do. And that isn't just a once a month thing or a once a year thing because I'm making a new year's resolution. It's because I'm going to get up every day and that's what I'm going to try to do because it's my job to try to help your vision grow, whatever that looks like. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's a wackadoodle are, answer. No. Oh my God. That's how that I think about it. Beyond any expectation. I mean, <laughs> uh, about helping someone's ember grow and glow and, and not dousing it. Uh, it's an amazing analogy and way to look at it. And I think it ties into something else I wanted to ask you about, which is your just, it seems like passion for mentorship, which I don't think in my experience is super common. Um, I think in my past in education, it was probably more common there just because that's sort of whole idea lends itself to that but outside of that i haven't seen a ton of it and i you know you don't see people always going out of their way to not only make these connections and help people as interns or whatever but then continue to check in and and be a source of help and guidance and positivity so um you know is that how i'm just curious like how you got to that place and and why that's so important to you Sure. Well, first of all, you are a you are a mentor as well. It's one of the things that I respected so much when we when we first spoke, right? I I'm I gravitate towards people who want to pay it forward. Um, and so I I just have to say I, I love that so much about you. And it Thank is you. one of the reasons why I believe you will ultimately be very successful in your career. So look, um, I uh so that comes back to a personal part of my story. You know, our family went through some rough times when my parents divorced. Um, we were blessed to have people that stepped to the table. And, you know, as early as when I was a freshman in high school, um, found room to be able to help me, you know, go to high school, get into high school. There were teachers who, because my mom was working multiple jobs, um, literally would drive me home after school every single day so I could do after school activities. Um, you know, I, I, I shout out to them, Mr. Rourke, who's no longer with us mm-hmm. and, 
and, you know, um, Joanne Rogenstein and Regina Townsend, right? Like these were, these were teachers who extended their teachingness beyond just what they had to do from nine to three. So I blame those women for mm-hmm. their willingness. And then I, I ended up with one of my best friends from, from high school, her mom, actually the woman who Senate campaign, I came back to work on, ah. you know, she was the first formal mentor that I had. And um, somehow in high school, she just saw something in me and she's the one that helped me get, get into Cornell by all rights and purposes. I, I shouldn't have been there. Um, and I'm not saying that because I wasn't a hard worker. I'm just saying that, that, you know, I, I didn't necessarily come from a family where that, that should have mm, happened. Mm. Um, and so then I, and so then I watched that again, what is the power of that? And side crazy story that I think will make you laugh when we talk about unknown mentors. So I am, so part of what happened with Cornell was I needed to have a a good chunk of financial aid and my application was very, very sort of unorthodox. And so there was a gentleman in 1989, Donald Soleil, Dean Donald Soleil, who took my application and helped me put together the financing so I could go to Cornell. Cut to 34 years later, December 16th, before the holiday, Yeah, I am meeting with a writer, a general writer meeting with a writer named Erica Soleil. And we are doing, because you know, you've been on the calls with me. Yeah. We're doing the, you know, let's get to know each other. And she's like, I'm from Ithaca, New York. And it isn't clicking with me yet. Yeah. I'm like, Ithaca. And I'm like, Oh, I'm like, did one of your parents work at either, you know, either university? And she's like, yeah, my dad worked in financial aid at Cornell. And oh my gosh. Daniel, I ugly cried. <laughs> I, I broke into tears because yeah. when I tell you that every Sunday of my life, I have prayed for Dean Donald Soleil. Oh my I have said yeah. to the, for 34 years, I have just said a quick prayer and said, like, please, Lord, whatever Donald Slay is doing right now, just like thank him. Thank, like, send a little thank you out to the universe. Mm-hmm. He was still alive. I got to write him an email over the holidays and like, and he wrote back. And I was like, look, like, I need you to know. I have no doubt that your work changed thousands of lives, but you need to know, like, you didn't. You are the reason why, as a human being, I don't ever say that's not my problem. Because mm. it was so easy for you to have looked at my application and been like, that's not my problem. Yeah. And you didn't do it and you picked it up. So again, like another mentor that I had no idea, but has fundamentally changed how I thought about. So mentorship to me is the combination of an homage to people who took the time to do it for me. It is a mindset that I was taught by that guy, Donald Soleil, never to say that's not my problem. And I think that, I think that people that are coming in at all points of their career, right. They need that. They need somebody to say, that's not my problem. And they need somebody to be willing to look at them and try to help them figure out like, Hey, this is the best way to crack your knot because every journey is going to be unique. Um, So yeah. So literally I, 
my first year working for Carrie, I started an internship program. He said to me, I think you should start an internship program. And I said, awesome. I loved it. And so at every company that I've worked at, if they've let me, and again, that's an if. So Woods Entertainment Mm -hmm. for sure. Furniture Co. We didn't. When I was working, trying to do my own company, we did. And then at Fila, I started an internship program at Fila Mm -hmm. and we had an internship program um, for all 10 years I was there. And that program I'm actually proud of because that expanded into other departments. So other department heads were like, how do you do that? And so our department helped build those intern programs in, in other and helped HR put it together. So, so cool. and then and again, at Littleton road, there was like no doubt. Cause at that point I didn't have to ask anybody except yeah. for Patrick, yeah, except yeah. for Patrick, of course. But like, I was like, <laughs> okay, great. Like I can just, I can do it. So, yeah. but I also want to be so clear. And I know, you know, this, and you and I have talked about this. Yeah. You get back way more than you give. Yeah. Way, way more than you give. And at 51, I need our interns. I need to understand there are two generations below me. Mm. So they, there is nothing altruistic about this intern program at this point. This <laughs> is survival of this is survival of the old lady right now. Oh like, right? God. Like I <laughs> like I I need to hear those voices. I want yeah. to hear those voices. Yeah. You know, we had Noel Parks, right? Who was oh, yeah. let me tell you something. Noel would offline be like, you are thinking about this wrong. You are talking about this wrong. This is not how our generation is thinking. Mm. Can you imagine if you didn't have the benefit of a really smart 21-year-old who was like, yeah, FYI, right? I'll never forget. She gave me notes on a project. And she's like, there's not a single diverse person on this project, Kelly. Mm -hmm. And you tell me that you're a company that's committed to diversity? had given two rounds of notes on the project. She kept her tongue for two rounds of notes and then was like, dude, like what's happening here? So, and I was like, you are absolutely frigging right. And Hmm. thank you for helping me to think differently. So I count on the interns at this point to help me think differently. And anything that I can share with them that might be helpful, I'm excited to do. But I get way more out of our interns than, than I think they get from us. Well, that's debatable, but that it's it's a great outlook, and I think it's it should also be noted that you are willing to listen to an intern and somebody that's twenty one years old and and new to the everything they're doing and and take it seriously. So, um, you know, that's unusual as well. And when I when you were talking about the dean from Cornell, it reminded me. Um, yes. There's there's a TED talk, and I learned of it. I. I do these do these leadership um, things for this company Sassy that I, I work with, and it's a video of this guy. Of course and, you do. <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> I do a couple of different things. He, uh, he it's called he creates he talks about creating lollipop moments, and I think it's exactly what you're talking about. Without getting too far into it, it's basically there was a time where he made this girl who was unsure about college, and he was sort of like an older guy or like a senior. She was a freshman. 
He wanted her to feel better. He made her laugh. He gave her a lollipop. And then years down the road, she said, you don't know this, but you're the reason I stayed in college. She like invited him to his wedding, all these things. <sighs> and so like it's called in the curriculum of this leadership company, it's called like creating these creating lollipop moments. And then you have that's kids awesome. kind of like put a piece of paper on their back and they write something nice about the person that's wearing the piece of paper. And it's like a whole thing. But um, <sighs> I think you're amazing at creating lollipop moments. And it sounds like you were sort of inspired by this, this Dean and then you've paid it forward yes. and it's it's exactly what you were talking about at the beginning with relationships and and making the ember glow yeah. and even if you don't have any preconceived idea of where you want it to go you just you just kind of do it and you make it part of yourself and it makes you feel good too um those are my takeaways i, I you had a lot of incredible things to say with all of that so keep creating lollipop i love moments. the lollipop moment. I yeah. love the I'll, I'll send That's you the video. Awesome. I'll, I'll try to remember. I'll put the the link to the video maybe in the the the. the I would love to see episode. it. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. Um, in before we, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I do have sure. like kind of one more question, I guess. Sure. You know, obviously this whole thing is called Happy Not Satisfied, and it's something that I'm all about, and I used it in my teaching with the band, and it helped us with our our culture there. And then I finally realized like I needed to kind of do some of this for myself, and I, I had a whole, I've probably talked to you about it, but I've had a whole sort of um, enlightening experience of how to be more clear and happier in all these things. Um, and I use this, this little short pithy sort of phrase to remind myself of that. But someone like you that I know, like outworks everyone in the world and would never even tell anyone that, but I know that's what goes on behind the scenes. Do you have anything that you sort of live by or think about or like what, what drives you and how do you keep yourself on track? How do you get your mind to, to work so hard and so diligently and so disciplined all the time. And if there's not like one, it doesn't have to be like, well, I have this phrase, like you have that phrase, <laughs> but like, just what is your mindset when it comes to that and what keeps you going? Um, I, I don't have anything profound to say on this front. I've worked this way my whole life. Yeah. Like literally, the, like this is a funny story. The, the first grade nun um, in the first parent teacher conference <laughs> took my mother to task and was like, you're driving her too hard. And my mother was like, I don't say a word to her. Oh my gosh, <laughs> she, that's so, like, it, so it kind of goes back to first grade. And if, if yeah. story, if legend in my family is to believed, is to be believed, I told my mother when I was two and a half that I wanted to start nursery school early because I didn't <laughs> want to sit around the house and watch her vacuum anymore. Oh my! Again, God. I don't. I don't know whether any two and a half year old is capable to have it. those words. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't think. I think that that has become family lore. Um, but I absolutely started nursery school when I was like two years and ten months. Like I should have had to have waited another year. Yeah. And my mom convinced the nursery school to take me. So. Um, I, the, I, the only thing I will say is this, and this goes back to, I never worried about title. I never yeah. worried about money because I have never taken a job that I haven't been able to get up without an alarm clock for. Okay, so yeah. maybe, maybe that's my phrase. I love that. I don't, my husband is like, <laughs> the few mornings that the alarm clock goes off or for whatever reason, he's like, I don't even turn off the alarm and roll over. Like he, we've been together now for 15 years. Like he knows if I am in bed when the alarm goes off, I will not be in bed long enough for him to roll over and kiss me because yeah, I yeah. am like up and ready to go. So yeah. maybe that's my phrase is if you find yourself 
in any role in life where you are looking at the alarm clock and you are hitting snooze three times, Mm. it's probably time for a change. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And I will say we we share that. I never set an alarm and I yeah. it's just I my eyes open and it's, it's time to go. I didn't used to be that way, I will say. Um, but as time has gone on, I I'm right there with you and I agree wholeheartedly. So um yeah. I love that. See, you found you found like a little a little phrase in there, you know? Yeah, it's good. There you go. Uh well, this has been I'm gonna, I'm... go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say I'm gonna start hashtagging, you know. Please don't set do. your alarm clock. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and then you're going to have a bunch of people who get fired from their jobs because they didn't wake up. <laughs> yeah. Please, rem- please remember there. that's an analogy there, ladies and gentlemen. It's yeah. not cold, hard advice. So. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, this conversation is exceeded expectations that were already incredibly high. Um, so thank you for being so honest and just sharing from your heart. You know, I, I think it's easy to kind of give surface level responses. And I felt like you really you were willing to to let us all in. And I think everyone listening will will really appreciate it. I certainly did. Um, and I don't know, is there well, thank the, you. maybe the, the Littleton Road website or I don't you don't I don't know if you really do social media, but is there anywhere that people can find you or Littleton Road? <laughs> Yeah, no, um, it's www.littleton-road.com. And um, my contact information is is right there. As you know, we we run a pro bono program for unrepresented writers. So that that email comes straight to me. It doesn't come to an assistant or a coordinator or somebody else in our company um, because it's super important to us that we have, I have a direct conduit to, to early days writers. So um, we can have an opportunity to read and be helpful if possible. So yeah. If we if we didn't already think you had the biggest heart, now we know that you have a pro bono writing program where the emails go directly to the president of the company. <laughs> I mean, come on. Well, I'm not sure. It's it's again, it's good business, right? <laughs> At the end of the day, it's sure. it's it's good business because we'll go with that. somebody we'll go with that. somebody's a future Jen Morrison, somebody's a future Patrick McManus, there right? There you go. Yeah. So. Um, they, they, they all are unrepresented writers at one point or another in their career. So I'm so humbled that you asked me to join. Thank you very, very much. And thank you for this and for providing this forum, right? So many people, um, I think just in general, we have questions specifically about this crazy industry, but more importantly, I think it's so important that folks have a place to go to so they can hear they're not alone in their journeys. And I think that is so much of what your generation has done so well, right? Certainly wasn't my generation, certainly mm-hmm. wasn't Gen X. And, and you guys have embraced this idea of not making people feel alone. So no. um, kudos to you specifically for the work that you do in the midst of being a new father, in the midst of finishing your graduate degree and in the midst of all the other interesting and fascinating things you're working on. So thank you on behalf of, I'm sure your listeners and, and certainly me. Well, I appreciate that. Um, and if anyone wants to learn more about Happy Not Satisfied, you can go to our website, happynotsatisfied.com or the Instagram, which is at happy.notsatisfied. Or you can email me too, daniel at happynotsatisfied.com. So um, Kelly, it's been amazing. I can't wait to see you in person. Yay! If you're in can't LA, wait to see hopefully you too. we can connect um, and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. All right. Give my best to Ellie, okay? I will. Thanks. Okay. Talk soon. If you haven't already, please give us a rating on Apple or Spotify. And if you enjoyed this episode or if you like the Happy Not Satisfied podcast in general, consider sharing it with a family member or friend that might like it too. 
Word of mouth is the most effective way for us to grow. Thanks.